Ah, the weekend and a busy old day on RTE Radio 1. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. It doesn't look like work, but I'm an actor. It, you know, it, 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 it's a lot, it's a lot of logistics and it's a lot of time. It's a lot of traveling. Sure. So that's, the, those are the hard parts. Meeting all the people and getting to taste all that food and wine is, that, that's amazing. So there now you have one liter of milk, milk this morning, pasteurized this morning, delivered to the vending machines this morning, and fresh to drink. Pulled out uh, my daughter's t-shirt, seeing my daughter getting upset and was really, really embarrassed. Right, so like, what was said to you then? Where did you get this T-shirt? Well, you know I can sue you for €3,500 for copyright infringement. And we'll start in the afternoon. Shay Byrne was in for Ray Darcy and he was chatting to Stanley Tucci. I'm sitting here with the inimitable Stanley Tucci, the actor, director, author, and he starred in over 70 movies, including The Devil Wears Prada, Julie and Julia, The Lovely Bones, alongside the wonderful Saoirse Ronan for which he has earned his first Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. We should call you Sir Stanley Tucci at this stage. He's also known for his love of good food, has travelled and tasted his way around Italy in a show called Stanley Tucci, Searching for Italy. That's an unusual title. It is. It must have taken ages to come up with that. And of course, he (laughs) he had the internet all shaken up over lockdown thanks to his Negroni making skills. He's in Dublin for the International Literary Festival and today he's launching Tankery 10's new summer cocktail serve called the Tiny 10. Welcome to Ireland. Thank you. But you've been here a few times. This is not your first time. I have. I've been here for quite a while. I was here for the film festival. That must have been about seven years ago or more. You've Irish friends, though, as well. Obviously, Saoirse Ronan now is a, a friend. Saoirse, although I haven't seen her for a very long time. Uh, my friend Aidan Quinn, who just came into town. We just crossed each other in the airport. Really? Actually. He's yeah, here. Yeah. He's a yeah. regular visitor. But he lived here as well. He was yeah, born he in the did. States yeah, when he was younger. He lived in yeah. Offaly and Dublin as well. And his, yeah. his late brother, of course, as well. So great yeah. guys. Yeah, wonderful. Are they friends back home? Yeah, in, they're in well, the they, States when you were in the States. I know you live yeah, in London now. Yeah, I live in London now, but we've been friends for 30, almost 35 years. Wow. Probably 35 years, yeah. And what tips has he given you when you're over here? Anything you need to try, any place you need to go? He'll just show me. I'll just follow him. <laughs> you know, that's only going to last a few hours, Stanley. Yeah. That's, a, that's short-term thinking. Yeah, you're only yeah, going yeah, yeah. to make one, maybe two places. <laughs> you do know that. What about Irish food? Is there anything you particularly want to try when you're here? I know living in London, like there's a lot of Irish influence in London and vice versa, but is there anything you've been told? I know you went out on Instagram and said, anything you'd recommend? Any- yeah. No, we're going to a couple restaurants. I'm not, my wife has booked everything. She's much better than I am. I sort of just show up and go like, where should I eat? You know, um, but she, so she's organized it. Where they are, I can't tell you, or what they are, I can't tell you. But I'm excited. Last time I was here, like I said, it was a while ago, but we had some really great, great food. No, there's lots of great small Irish producers as well, and the yeah. restaurants all around here where you are now and other places, they have local uh, produce, fabulous cheeses and charcuterie, yeah. et cetera as well. A couple of things to avoid, steak on a stone. Ever had steak on a stone? No, I've heard of that. That is one of the worst things ever. Yeah, why do they do that? They're because, uh, interactive, to be playful. They bring you out this slab that looks like a breadboard with a hot slate on it. They half cook your steak without charring it, and yeah. then they expect you to finish cooking it, and they give you three Do they sauces. give you a- Discount for that? <laughs> so when I go and they say, steak on a stone, I said, let the chef cook it. Yeah. Yeah. You, well, that's sort of the point of the you, chef, isn't it? You don't need to be And too. going to a restaurant. Can you yeah. imagine going to Italy with a steak on a stone? No. <laughs> no. My yeah. father-in-law goes to Portugal, and he goes to a place where they have a steak and a stone. Does he like it? Yeah, he likes it. Hey, listen. He says it's really good. What's the wine recommendation with steak on a stone? 
Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Something soft. And Shay asked Stanley about his Italian food programme. In searching for Italy, you went through each region of it and we watched it and we loved it. And you just looked like you were enjoying yourself. I mean, that didn't look like work. Come on. It doesn't look like work, but I'm an actor. It, you know, it, 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 it's, a lot, it's a lot of logistics and it's a lot of time. It's a lot of traveling. Sure. So that's the, those are the hard parts. Meeting the, excuse me, meeting all the people and getting to taste all that food and wine, is, that's amazing. It's really the logistics of doing it yeah. and getting there and, you know, oh, well, with TV production, you got to walk away from something and you got to walk towards it. Yeah. And you got to walk so everything is shot four times and yeah. close-ups. And yeah. What did you say the last time? Just say that again, Stanley. I don't yeah. remember what I said no, the last I time. No, I actually don't do that. I no? said we're not doing that for the most part because it takes too long. And if we can capture it as... I want to also be able to, to capture things as spontaneously as possible. Right, so we'll have three cameras. I don't want to have to repeat it because it's also unfair to the contributor who's who's doing it because they're not, you know, they're not actors. They're not used to doing that. So the more spontaneous we can be, the better for everybody. Well, you don't get to do that in movies, so it's good to be able to do it on... Yes, uh, yes, gorgeous. <laughs> endless take after take after yeah. take. I'm going yeah. to my trailer. Yeah, yeah. And never <laughs> coming back. <laughs> Being an uh, Italian on both sides. Yes, like, on both sides. <laughs> Very important to yes, say. Yes. Traveling there as well. Were you welcomed? Were you accepted by the people when you went to talk about food? Did they, did, you know, you, did you talk about your Italian heritage? What did they? Oh yeah, no. People were incredibly. The Italians are very generous and very welcoming. Um, they they make it easy. They actually make it really easy. Um, I had lived in Florence when I was young, so I spoke Italian and I studied again before I did the show because I hadn't really spoken a lot for the last. 50 years so uh that was that was very helpful and you know even if you can just say a few sentences they're very forgiving it makes a big difference um, yeah, yeah it makes a big difference yeah. i spend i spend a good bit of time in spain and i find that as well if you make yeah. an effort they might laugh at you for a few minutes while you yeah. suggested that you have something that they've never heard of before and even the spanish people have never heard of what your pronunciation of something right, but they're right yeah <laughs> no, but they're very they're very giving and very welcoming unlike the parisians like the Parisians, <laughs> I just got that there. <laughs> when you ask a question in French and they go, it's okay, we speak English. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. that kind yeah. of answer. They just walk away. <laughs> they yeah. just walk away. Yeah. Although there is a restaurant in Paris which I want to go to and it just serves green salad, yeah. steak and fries. That's all it serves. And they have an amazing green sauce, pepper-based green sauce Ooh. that it goes with. Ooh. Really? And you pay a set fee and you can have two servings of steak and two servings of fries and a green salad to start and I think some great bread. So oh. we'll, we'll, we'll try like find the out the name of that. Meal. That sounds fab. Oh, my God. That's a steak frite. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind me asking, kids are young, your young children mm -hmm. that you have. I know mm -hmm. you've got older children as well. You've got young children. Do you bring them with you to Italy and let them enjoy? They did come. They came when we did Venice. They came for about a week. And that was really, really great to have them there. Um, and, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes because of the schedule. But we try to keep our days as tight as possible so that people get a chance to relax in the evenings. So it was great when they were there. Well, I brought two to Seville, beautiful Sevilla in, this, in southern Spain. Yeah. One ate Burger King and McDonald's and one ate uh, black pudding, blood pudding, uh, fried fish. Uh, Fascinating. And, and, uh, so you never know what you're going to get. No, so you don't. Are yours no. adventure? Are they adventurous? My son, who's eight, is becoming much more adventurous. His sister, who's five, we just went to Bordeaux for like a few days and stayed in this little little place by the ocean. And she, she basically ate baguette, you know, for three days. 
<laughs> and he tried everything. Really? Yeah, he didn't like everything, but at least he yeah. tried it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're in Ireland doing a literary festival as mm -hmm. well, and your book, your book has been very successful, and it's gone to paperback, which is a really yeah, good sign. I know. You haven't even tried to sell one copy of it since you started speaking to me. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to. They're all sold. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's been incredibly successful. We were so happy. Uh, I'm so happy about it. And in fact, a fella in the airport this morning came up to me with a copy of the book, and he said, I just bought this. He goes, I read about one book every 10 years. And he said, "This." He said, "I can't believe it." So I signed the book for him. No. but it was it was really sweet, and it's really it's beyond my what I could have imagined. We had it on uh, in in the office on the desk, and it was the most sought after book because people go, oh, "Can I have that when you're finished?" I had to lock it in my desk in really? case. Was, yeah, yeah. I think it's because your picture's on it, but that's another <laughs> that's another point. Um, last question, if you don't mind me yeah, asking, yeah. Um, you're in Ireland and you've got an ability to invite a lot of Irish people to a dinner. Is there anybody in particular that you'd you could imagine having a dinner party with? I know Sir Sharon will be there. Aidan Quinn will mm -hmm, be there and his family. Mm -hmm. Who else might you invite? Oh God, jeez. Um, what about? Um Gabriel Byrne, he doesn't oh, live here, does yeah. he? Yeah. Well, he, he comes and goes. He he's, does. Yeah, he's yeah. Well, he a great character. I love him. I saw his one-man show. Uh, a friend of ours said, you know, you got to go see this. And it was absolutely stunning. Brilliant. Stanley Tucci in the afternoon with Shea Byrne. And on Today with Claire Byrne, would you be prepared to spend more money on locally produced food? Well, reporter John Cook was talking to some enterprising producers, including a dairy farm and their milk vending machine, Bonya Bots. John and Jackie Vaughan milk around 50 Frisian cows daily on their dairy farm at Mohana, Milltown, Malbay in County Clare. And most of the milk goes to the Kerry Group for processing. It cost them around 38 cent per litre to produce milk last month, they told me, and they got 42 cent in return per litre from Kerry. But John doesn't blame the milk co-ops. He says their price are dictated by the price of milk, cheese and butter on the stock exchange. And with big supermarkets lowering milk prices as a loss leader, Jackie, who's originally from Germany, got down to work on new ideas for making a better living on their farm. Hence the purchase of a number of automated milk vending machines, milk robots, if you like, Claire, or Banyabots, as is their official trademark name. They also got a pasteurising facility on their farm and a €320,000 investment is what's involved here with 50% support from leader funding, allowing them to sell their Muhana milk, as it's called, to the public in convenient locations beside local shops and other amenities. Now, the Vahans tell me machines like this are becoming common across Europe and the UK. While they are also in use on a small number of farms selling direct to the public across Ireland, one of them contacted me this morning indeed when they heard about this report coming up, Moo Cow Fresh Milk in Leash. But these public vending machine kiosks that John and Jack have installed so far in Milltown Malbay and in the village of Ina in County Clare along the busy N85 road to Lahinch are among the first of their kind. Inside the kiosk are two Banyabot machines, a vending machine selling reusable glass milk bottles and a recorded audio-visual instruction guide on how it all works. But for my turn, John the farmer was there himself to take me through the process. So you walk in, you can buy your bottle your litre bottle or a half litre bottle. That bottle, once you buy it, is yours forevermore. It's nice to see the traditional milk bottles as well. I don't know if that is a novelty value for some people, but glass bottles here ready to, to, well, to dispense. The thing about it is our bottles are reusable. Since we opened last December, we reckon we have about 25,000 bottles saved from landfill. 
which is a substantial amount for mm. a very, very small business in Northwest Clare. Uh-huh. That's good to hear in itself. Now, so what happens? I tap my credit card here. You tap your credit card here. It asks you for a code. You press 2-2 for the litre bottle. Mm-hmm. So All cashless payments here, so... No cash in this business. Mm. That means you're open 24 hours a day, you're telling me as well. People just walk in, help themselves. They don't need to to see you. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. We'll grab the bottle. So there we are. Moving a milk. Wholeness in your day. This is a one litre bottle. So so, uh, we'll open it up and tell me what's next. So now you come over to the milk vending machine. You just press the one litre of milk there. It flashes. You present your card. Put in your bottle, hold it like a pint glass uh-huh. at the pub. So you hold your pint glass under the spout and you just press start. And there is the milk flowing. Just like it does from the cow. <laughs> so there now you have one litre of milk, milked this morning, pasteurised this morning, delivered to the vending machines this morning. Uh-huh and fresh to drink. This milk is good in your fridge for five days if you hold it at below four degrees Celsius. We put the lid on it. So the, the big difference in this milk and the milk that you get in the shop is this is pasteurized, not homogenized. So in the morning, when you go to the fridge to take out this bottle of milk, there'll be an inch of cream in the top of it. So you need to shake it to get that cream back into the milk again. How much does it cost? That's what people will wonder, this litre of milk. Because <laughs> everybody's wondering that these days. <laughs> it's all down to cost. It's €1.70 as we we're charging for that milk. At that, we're making a small margin. We're not out to become millionaires. The normal become, we just want to be a sustainable business for a small farm. Sounds reasonable enough there from John Vaughan of Moona Milk. And it sounds lovely and creamy. How does it taste, John? Really good, Claire. It's around 4% fat or whole milk that's been pasteurised, as you heard, but not homogenised. So it's a little richer and creamier than you might be used to. There's also flavoured milks that my kids have been enjoying trying out. And I was really impressed, as I think John and Jackie were, to see how many customers pulled in from the busy road with their clean bottles ready to refill and others trying it out for the first time. Johnny O'Loughlin from Ina told me he picks up around two litres each day and wouldn't drink anything else anymore. The, the, the milk is a lot better, there's more cream in it. Tastes lovely, not nicer than the on the shop milk. It makes a big change from going to the supermarket or the shops. You don't do that anymore, no, is what you're saying for this, my, Johnny? I don't buy milk in the shop anymore. Uh-huh. No, and I buy this all the time. No, you're uh, full up there. Full up, no. Are you a regular customer here yourself? I started about three weeks ago. Uh-huh. It's just so lovely to get the fresh stuff and to, yeah, to know where it comes from and... And it's really popular every time I drive by. Mm-hmm. Loads of people here. Well, that's milk. So John took a look at Ennis Farmers Market. I figured if you can support local farmers directly by buying milk in convenient locations, well, what else can you buy this way? And of course, many listeners will be familiar with some of the great farmers markets we have right across the country. The Ennis Farmers Market that I visited is at the Ross Levin Shopping Centre every Friday morning, where the sun was shining on stalls selling everything from fresh bread and free-range eggs to organic meat, vegetables and cheese. And I stopped for a chat first with Connor Cagney at his Real Meat Cooperative stall. He raises Dexter cattle on his farm near Charleville in County Cork and his main outlet for selling are the uh, Herbert Park Market in Dublin each Sunday and the market in Ennis on Friday where I met him and he showed me some of what he had for sale. Well, we'll sell individual steaks and stewing and mince. The regular, the more um, commodity pieces like mince and stewing that sell mostly. 
We also do stakes and joints. What about price, Connor? How much would I pay for this? Well, it, it, it isn't your bargain basement meat, but it doesn't taste like it either. You'd be paying for a strip loin steak in the region of uh, seven or eight euro and for a half a kilo of mince about uh, eight euro. You know, it's lovely meat and it's quite unique and you're uh, helping to maintain a sustainable production system. You know, come and try it. Uh, it's Gerard Wren, Ina Free Range Farm. We're based in Ina, County Clare. So we do all our own free-range pork products, rashers, sausages, pork. I suppose the way it should be, slow-grown, reared outside in fields. Completely different product you get in any supermarket. You've got various other things for sale today from eggs to jam and I'm going to buy these black pudding sausages off you. They're six euros say for, a, for, for this pack of sausages. About ten in the pack is it? Yeah, give or take around that. It's all done on weight. Okay, our sausages are far more expensive than maybe in the shop but you know, you're talking 84, 85% pork and this is the first thing. Again, handmade and with uh, high weight for pork reared outside in fields and things like that. And when everyone's talking about their costs and their bills right now, do you think they can afford to shop places like this? It can be done, of course. Like, I think you, if you plan out your meals and things like that, yes, buy better quality and, you know, eat less of it. Like, you have a pack of sausages there, you can get a breakfast and a dinner out of it, no problem. Maybe even more. You know, you, you can get good value in these kind of places. You get very healthy foods, no sprays, all organic. And I think it's just how you plan it out and how you use it after that is key. That's it. Uh-huh. Kean, tell me what you're buying at the market today. I am buying mince and heart and liver. Why do you buy here? Because uh, I like to buy directly from the farmer. The only time I tend to go to the supermarket is if I'm buying dog food. So you're coming here for quality, but is it more expensive? And will you spend yeah, a lot yeah. of money here today? Well, I suppose it depends what you're comparing to. Like, I mean, I'm less likely to go to a GP and get sick because of buying healthy food. So mm. the cost I'd pay for a GP would probably outweigh the cost of buying quality foods. Is this a luxury to be able to shop this way? Yeah, privilege, I'd say to an extent, yeah, but I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to buy quality food and not be in a situation where I can't buy it. I can understand where people are coming from, but at the end of the day, I would much prefer to prioritise health over cost. John Cook at the Ennis Farmers Market for Today with Claire Barring. And in the afternoon, Colm O'Mungoin was in for Joe on the live line and Michelle Woods was calling about an event featuring dance coach Abby Lee Miller on Wednesday morning. Oh, the excitement was unreal. The days had been counted down for the last couple of weeks. Um, my daughter and my niece were going to see Abby Lee Miller in Clontarf in the Irish Wheelchair Association. Uh, they were just over the moon and couldn't wait. Right, and who is Abby Lee Miller and how did your daughter and your niece know who she was? She's an American um, TV personality. She runs a dance company in America that teaches um, children of all ages um, dance. She's had a few famous um, kids um, participate in music videos and all that jazz um, throughout the years. So it, it was a big deal for them. And she's a pretty tough cookie on the TV show. I mean, in, oh yeah, oh yeah. In yeah. her in her own words, she says, "Everybody knows me for being tough and mean and yelling at little kids." Yeah, yeah. And so, what did yeah. your daughter and your niece make of her when they saw her on telly? What do they make of the whole show? Oh well, they loved it. They they knew she's she's a tough cookie while teaching dance. She's she's hard enough on the girls. Um, but they they love the dance aspect of it. They love the different dance that she taught, 
and some other teachers taught she they they just loved the dance aspect of it the the whole the lyrical dancing the different types of dance the competitions they they loved it being in dance themselves um they really liked learning different routines you know copying them from youtube and and stuff like that and she's on a sold out tour of Ireland now so when did you hear about the tickets and how quickly did you go about buying the tickets for yeah, her we, tour yeah we heard about it a couple of months ago and um, my daughter was really excited at first we thought it was only she was only holding one um, event in Bally Buffet I think and it was a bit far you know and the price of the hotel so we kind of put it on the back burner, but then we heard she was down Dublin, a few different places in Dublin. And my daughter really wanted to go because of the dance workshop that was that was announced that she, she would be down. So, um, so we went about getting the tickets and we were able to get them quite quickly. Right, so it's advertised on, on, on the website for a 90-minute dance class, which will give you the yeah. experience of what it's like to, to audition for Abby. So you bought the tickets. What were you expecting from what you um, signed up for? Um, well, at first we were expecting a meet and greet. That We bought a combination tickets for the girls. And it was initially, it was a meet and greet um, with a photo. It was a dance workshop and it was questions and answers at the end. Right. So, so you went to the venue, which was the Irish Wheelchair as Association Sports Hall in Clontarf. You got there in good time. Tell us about queuing up for the event. Oh, yeah. So it was recommended that you queue up in um, good time. That was in the email because the meet and greet started at four o'clock. So we got there about quarter past, about three, quarter past three by the time we got parking and, and we queued up and we were probably second in the queue um, at that stage and the excitement was unreal. Right, so when unreal. when did Abby Lee Miller arrive at the, at the venue? Abby didn't arrive till after, oh God, it probably was near four o'clock by the time she arrived by taxi. Um, our manager came out to address the crowd that was already a, a long line of kids, you know, squealing with excitement at this stage. And he announced that she'd be arriving in five minutes' time um, and that we'd go in for the meet and greet quite quickly after. And Cullum asked Michelle about Abby's appearance on stage. So we were brought into the main hall and we were told to queue around um, the edge of the wall going around the perimeter of the hall. So we done that and as I said, we were probably second in the queue. There was a couple of kids in front of us. Um, so Paul, her manager, came in and said that she'd be coming out in, in a couple of minutes. So we all waited, the excitement, the whole hall was buzzing, the kids were dancing, cartwheeling, you name it. Um, so next of all, Abby arrived in to the all main right. well, hall. Let, let, for anyone who is not familiar with her, we're going to play a clip for her to, to let it, unfamiliar listeners know what she sounds like. People around the country know me. They know Abby Lee because I produce stars. I produce amazing, employable dancers. I know how to groom these children and raise these kids. Some of them as if they were my own. All right, so that's that's Abby Lee Miller speaking yeah. there on, on, on our television programme. But when she came into yeah. the Irish Wheelchair uh, Sports Hall in Clontarf, what did she say? What was the first thing you heard from her? Um, she said, hey, 
like, um, she said hi to the kids. The kids were all screaming, gave her big claps and cheers. And then she took the mic and she said, um, now I'm just letting you all know, um, this isn't a meet and greet. This is a photo opportunity. I will not be signing T-shirts. I will not be signing paper. I will not be signing photographs. I know the email says meet and greet, but this is not going to be a meet and greet. So that was the first, that was the the initial, the initial addressing of the crowd that she done. That, right. That's what she said. And what was the reaction? You're a second in the queue. Everyone went quiet. Everyone went quiet. Parents looked at each other. The kids kind of looked. They just seemed disheartened. They really did. Um, there was my two, my niece and my daughter had um, a notebook for her to sign. They quickly gave it to us, like, oh, do what Abby says, you know. But they, they were disappointed. There was other children that had photographs of themselves in their dancing competition where with their trophies and plastic pockets ready to go, markers, you name it, were quickly all put away. So no signing, no meet and no. greet. So so what was there? It was a photo opportunity, she she said. She told the crowd. So what, go um, up beside Abby, she's sitting she in, gave, in her wheelchair gave, and you go up beside her and you get your photo yeah, taken, she, is it? She gave quite precise instructions of how she wanted to be photographed and what the children had to do. Um, they had to come around the left, the left side of her with their right knee touching her left knee um, and their head in close to hers. If they get a, a signal from one of our entourage teams, they put their head forward to horse. Um, that's that's what we were told. That's what the children had to do. Then Cullum asked Michelle about meeting Abby for photos. So anyway, trying to remember all of these instructions that you yeah. got with your yeah, tenure. Yeah. And w- yeah. Were your daughter and niece able to go in for the same photo or did they have to go separately? No, they went separate. Um, our phones, we weren't allowed to take any photogra- photographs or videos. Um, our phones had to be given to her entourage team. And they would take the photographs and the videos. Well, no videos, actually, just photographs. Right. The photographs um, taken on your yeah. phone, is it? Yeah. All yeah. right. Okay. So who who went first, your daughter or your niece? My niece went first, and um, um, my daughter queued. You had to queue in behind our backdrop, and um, there was a bit of a delay. Our backdrop wasn't quite right, so they had to kind of fix that. She gave out to the production team, um. And that was fixed. And then my niece went ahead All to right. get her photograph taken. And, and where were you in relation to your niece? How far away from you um, was your niece? A couple of feet. A couple of feet. All right. So your niece goes yeah. up for, to, to get the photo taken. And, and what happened then? Um, we were chatting excitedly to the other parents that were waiting that their children were in the queue behind the backdrop. And we kind of noticed our kind of, you know... Um, just pulling out of her T-shirt a bit. At first, initially, I thought, you know, with Americans, they can be over-exaggerative, like, you know, and I thought she was admiring the T-shirt at first. This is Abby Lee Miller um, herself now. You you could herself. see her doing something with your niece's yeah, T-shirt. and I was like, and my niece started to look a bit kind of uncomfortable. And she pulled out of it a bit more aggressive than... 
then what she shut up. It, it was it, it was in an aggressive way, and then she summoned me, my sister, over to her, and proceeded to tell my sister she was taking the. This is the child's mother, is it? Yeah, she was taking her t-shirt. She was confiscating it right there. Put, yes, going to take the t-shirt. Yes, yes, and. She could sue her for up to three and a half thousand euro because we were breaching copy copyright infringement. All right. So where, where the the t-shirts weren't yeah. official merchandise. So this was no. So she was alleging yeah. that these were counterfeit t-shirts anyway, and that yeah. that that they they they'd, yeah. they'd have to go. Yes. Right. So how is that going to be handled? Presumably, you know, people can't um, tog off yeah. there and then. So what's what? Yeah. She she pulled out a T-shirt and she told her they would have to take them. Um, Pay for them or, or, or... No, she was going to take them and we could get another T-shirt at the front desk. Right. One of our own T-shirts. So this has all happened with your niece. What's your niece and indeed your sister's reaction to all of this? My sister was just totally dumbfounded. Um, I Because of the noise in the hall... I couldn't really hear exactly what she was saying and my sister came back to inform me what she had just said um, and at that stage my niece was very upset um, and then my my daughter was obviously next and everything was happening. They were trying to get through as many as they could. Right. Did my your daughter, daughter know what had happened then? So when she was going no, up, did no, she know there had been no, some exchange? No, she was kind of standing behind the backdrop um, so she didn't really know what was going on. And did she so have the she same was, kind of T-shirt on? She had only in a different colour. All right. So what happened then? So my daughter was pushed forward by the entourage team and with that, the same thing, pulled out uh, my daughter's T-shirt and summoned me to come over. I was already on my way over because I could see my daughter getting upset and was really, really embarrassed. Right. So like, what was said she, to you then? Yeah. Um, the same thing. Um, where did you get this T-shirt? And I said, I, I got it online. And she says, um, well, you know, I can sue you for three and a half thousand euro for copyright infringement. I, I was just, I was just dumbfounded. Like I was, I, I couldn't find words. I was just. Now how are I you feeling at, at this stage? How many people are behind you in the queue now while all there of this is going on? 400 people. 400 people there. And could they all um, see that that something was going on yeah, here? Yeah, uh, the first maybe half of the crowd would would have been able to see, and um, there was a couple of parents that were right beside us, obviously waiting on their children that could could see all this happening. Right, and uh, so what's the atmosphere like for those who knew what was going on? Just completely like. It was just appalling. It really was. It was so, the girls were crushed. They were so upset. That's Michelle on the live line with Cullum O'Mungoy. And on Morning Ireland, invasive pink salmon in Irish waters. And Inland Fisheries Ireland are asking anglers to let them know of any sightings they may have of Pacific pink salmon in Irish waters this summer. They've been spotted since 2017. But for more on the pink salmon and the threat they could pose, let's hear from Cahal Gallagher, who's Head of Research and Development with Inland Fisheries Ireland. Cahal Gallagher, good morning. Good morning. 
What's the pink salmon, by the way, and why is it a threat? So the pink salmon is native to the Pacific Ocean, so it's not a native species we have uh, in our Atlantic Ocean. Oh, it's the kind of salmon and that used to come in the tinned salmon when yes, we were kids. Yeah, many, yes, many people would, would, would know it from, from salmon that's canned over on the... Uh, on the west coast of of Canada and and the US, and I suppose it arrived over in the in the Atlantic basin through a stocking program, which was happening in northwest Russia through the 1950s and right the way up until until 2000. Stocked a number of rivers and have sustaining populations. And what's happened uh, in intervening years was small numbers were seen to migrate down through the coast of Norway. But as you mentioned. Uh, in 2017, we've seen a big jump in the numbers in Norway. And in fact, samples were taken in Ireland. So we, we found in 2017, 36 uh, pink salmon caught in 11 catchments in Ireland. And is this a bit like the brown squirrel versus the red squirrel, that increasingly the brown squirrel has dominated? And is it a bad thing? I think that's that, that's probably a good analogy. Uh, you know, we don't know yet how, how uh, difficult a problem this could be. But what we can learn from is what's happening, as I mentioned earlier on, in Norway, where over two years, and they have a two-year life cycle, they've seen a tenfold increase. And they have many thousands of these uh, pink salmon running into what would be considered our, our native Atlantic salmon rivers. Um, and they can cause a threat, like any invasive species that are introduced into a water body. They can be a threat to our native biodiversity or local ecology. Um, but, you know, we're at the early stages, so we're trying to understand what the potential threat from these pink salmon could be. And how, if they do turn out to be a problem, again, if if, if you find the native Irish salmon um, isn't competing as well with them? And do we have a fair chance in that fight, in that competition? Well, the- this is really why we're we're trying to be proactive and we're trying to engage. We've so far had seen small numbers in Ireland and we can learn the lessons from Norway. So, for example, the, the, the problem is critical in many rivers in Norway where they have a full barrier across the river. And what they do is they catch all of the salmon, both pink and Atlantic salmon returning, and then take out the pink salmon. But what we'd like to do in Ireland is to engage with our anglers so that we can find out early if there's particular catchments that are having a number of these uh, pink salmon returning. And then we could take an early intervention and it's called rapid reaction to go out and take them out before they have an opportunity to spawn and increase their numbers. Um, and that's the focus. If, if, mm-hmm. if we can get information uh, through our stakeholders, our anglers, uh, to find out what's happening, um, that would be very, very helpful in trying to prevent a problem from down the line, really. To the best of my recollection, wild Irish salmon, which is a rare and very expensive treat, uh, was in short supply last summer. Was it a bad year for Irish salmon? Well, Atlantic salmon are under threat. Um, They've they've suffered a decline in population from maybe, you know, returning for every hundred smolts that go out and smolts are the juveniles that go out to sea and migrate back in the you know, the 60s, 70s, we were getting 20 back and the average now is only five. So they've they've had a big decline in population and are under threat. The unique thing about Atlantic salmon is that they're tied to their own catchment. So if you grew up beside a river where there's Atlantic salmon, the same families of salmon are returning to that river since the Ice Age. So they're really unique and uh, threatened species. So anything that could add additional pressure to, to, to local catchments would be a severe problem. What other invasive species threaten our waters, if any? 
Well, we've had various uh, threats. We have, you know, freshwater species like dace, which are coming through the country. We've had instances, for example, of the introduction of of chub. But what's unique about Irish fish populations is that we do have many of our native populations and we are an island nation. So we have fewer uh, of these invaders than maybe we would have in in mainland Europe, for example. But it is something that we're continuously conscious of and trying to prevent. Cahill Gallagher from Morning Ireland with Anya Lawler. And in the morning, Rita Wall was speaking to Ryan Tuberty about her artist sister, Bernadette. Bernadette uh, is my older sister mm-hmm. and uh, she um, was born, uh, was, was very healthy when she was born. But when she was about three or four months, she, she really uh, showed signs of delay and uh, she needed a lot of support. And um, my parents were very worried about her. My mother had to spend hours trying to read, or not read, but feed her. And um, eventually she developed and um, my father had to move his job and she was, um, um, we were advised to put her into a boarding school in Cabra. She can hear, but she can't speak. So uh, we had to leave her as a small child and move away with my father's father's work. And it was devastating for my parents at the time Mm. and to, to, to leave her. I, I, I'd say now my my mother's heart was, was broken at that time. But um, eventually we were able to come back and um, she came to live at home. But there wasn't any place for her. At that stage, it was about nine or ten. There wasn't any place. We were in the north side of Dublin. Mm-hmm. At that time, there wasn't any place for her. So she used to be in an upstairs room looking down at, at the street. And we were coming and going, with a few siblings, and um, she was um, just watching watching life going by, trying to do little things. My mother trying to keep an eye on her. But eventually then my father um, got a chance to work, uh, to move job to Dublin and near um, St. John of God Services in um, in Denagiri. And she got a place there. And that was such a relief for my parents to 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 that she finally was in a place that she could blossom. Yes. And she developed there then. And you probably know that service yourself. I know um, it well. I pass it by yeah. all the time, actually, yeah. as it happens, Rita. Um, and um, it's uh, I, I I've never been into the place, which I must go someday if they'll, yeah, if they'll have me. Yeah, time maybe now. <laughs> well, you, <laughs> you're not the first person to suggest that. It, it's, yeah. But it is. But no, you're, to see you. Yeah, well, okay. Well, we'll make that happen. That's an easy one. Uh, but back to back to Bernadette. You say she was non-verbal, but yeah. she... Uh, so tell me about communication in dance so she years. can She can hear. She uses her own uh, kind of sign language. She, the, the idea of going to Cabra was that she would learn sign language, but she did find that difficult. And so she just uses her own sign language and she uses her eyes and she uses expressions, you know. So she, but you can understand, we can understand her and her carers can understand her. And um, certainly she was very vulnerable, I think, at that time when I look back when she was boarding and only for the families, uncles and aunts and friends in Dublin and Limerick, they were terrific. I mean, they used to take this little girl out. Uh, and visit her on a Sunday, you know, because she she, she must have been, it must have been very hard for her as well to be boarding, you know, oh. in a place where where people weren't speaking, and she, you know she you know she was just great. So she was sent to a, a school for the deaf, is that right? And yeah. hard of yeah. hearing, and even though she she her hearing she was perfectly hear. fine. Yeah. Okay, yeah, and this yeah. was in the would would it be the seventies? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Okay. She's sixty-four now, um, Ryan. All yeah. right. And what what was she uh, into? Uh, because 
she I got the sense she was very creative from from yeah, an she early was. age. I, I think she just had to develop her own resilience. You know, she had to develop something, you know, and I think when she was spending those hours on her own, particularly when she was out of um, an institution, uh, she just kind of, we had an old accordion at home. She kind of tried to teach herself to play that. My parents tried to get somebody in to help her. You know, she would do drawing and she would help out a little bit at home as well. But it was really when she went to um, the Carmona services, really um, the, the teachers there and there was a, an art teacher, Paul White, and his, um, they, they did they did art and pottery. And then there was another, uh, Bernie was working in the garden centre. She just kind of developed developed her own artistic sense yeah. sense yeah. and they they just encouraged and, and welcomed and and she blossomed really you know it's it's since the toy show peel uh, i've come to understand appreciate and admire the uh power of music and art therapy yeah um yeah. i didn't understand it before um because yeah. i didn't look into it i was i was ignorant um and yeah. th- when i saw it up close i realized what it does for people. It it, it makes yeah. flowers blossom, um, in people yeah. and it lifts moods, and that's what happened with your sister. She found herself, I presume, drawing and knitting yeah, and the accordion and, and knitting, and she loves and she loves music as well. Yeah, and yeah, so all of those things. Yeah, you just put the nail on the head there. Like it's it's you know, there's other forms of communication, isn't there? You know, it's not just all verbal, all talking. Exactly. Like you know, people can listen to music and be lifted. They can cry. They can be happy. Um, same with art, you know, it can really move you. And Rita spoke about Bernadette's relationship with Clive Cody. Well, um, she um, she met Clive in when she started in the Kimono Services of Geary and he was um, this um, true gentleman. Uh, he was a, a man, a young, same age as herself, who was there and uh, he was from Dublin and uh, he, again, he had a a hard life in his early years. He was had a lot of health issues. But anyway, he found the Carmona services and was a resident, resident in a small house in, in the area. And he is just such, a, he was this lovely gentleman, a great musician. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he plays the organ, he played the church organ in, um, his father was um, Verger in, in Christchurch in Dublin. And then when he came out to live in Glenagiri, he used to play the, the organ in, um, in, uh, St. Michael's in Glenagiri on a Sunday and uh, he was just a, such a gentle character and a very um, very witty in his own way a man of few words Yeah. but anyway Bernadette and himself clicked it clicked you know they were great friends they worked together and then they had a few little social dances uh, in the in the centre and she put her eye on him and he put her eye on her and then they just fell in love really and they were together for 30 years, really, in that sort of special friendship. And how did the special friendship manifest itself? How did they well, become well, so close? Well, he was just, he was just, um, you know, he was just very, very particular. He was very particular in his dress. Um, you know, very sharp dresser, a bit like yourself, you know, very nice suits and look, always look very dapper. And then he'd always remember to send her. He was a true gentleman. He would send the Valentine's cards, the red roses the Christmas gifts, the birthday gifts. And if there was any, you know, if there was any do on, he was always with her, beside her. She was with him. She always had her hand on him, afraid that somebody else, I think she's sort of afraid somebody else could could, yeah. could bump in or, or get her, you know. Wow. So, or get him. So she, she was just um, mad. They just, just, connect, mad they just connected him. and that's just the way yeah. of the world. And yeah. You, so and my, my parents yeah. actually, Ryan, loved him as well because um, oh, we had small parties in the house and, um, 
he often came came up and he brought us a little synthesizer. So we'd always start with a few Church of Ireland hymns, <laughs> and then so we get not? into then we get into the Elvis Presley Great. and uh, you know rock and roll. And um, it was just he was such a gentleman. My my mother was very relieved because us other sisters we didn't have fellas that were anyway as nice as him coming <laughs> to the house. You know. <laughs> You know, when, when you're ever worried about somebody in your life, you, you really hope they find company, don't you? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think yeah. that's that's probably maybe your parents were just so happy that, you know, Bernadette yeah. wasn't looking to them for sunshine yeah. all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And she did find a big love. Yeah. You yeah. know, and I suppose love is, is a, you know, she's lucky. Some people don't find a big love, you know, in yeah. their lives. And uh, she did find somebody who was very special and uh, fantastic. I think it's even more remarkable in, in the sense that Bernadette is non-verbal and Clive was, as you say, a man of few words. And yet, yeah. as the old Latin expression says, love conquers all. And yeah. Um, yeah. love will conquer communication. It'll conquer geography. It'll conquer yeah. everything if, if, if it's meant yeah. to be. And time as well. You know, it conquers time because sometimes then if a person, and you know, the person isn't there with you, you don't forget them. You know, that that continues, mm-hmm. you know. That's and sure. um, it's, it's It's wonderful. Now, uh, Clive got sick. Yeah. Sadly, uh, about ten uh, years ago. Yeah, yeah. Do you want and to tell it, me a little bit know, about they that? Were, well, the 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 thing was that the staff at St John of God Services were absolutely fantastic, yeah. you know, and they they were really minding um, Clive, but they were also really watching out for Bernadette. And um, just before he died, um, we went to see him um, before he went into hospital. Actually, we went to see him, and he was just such a you know. I think there's a depth. Behind, sometimes you look at somebody and you think, "Oh, they don't feel that," but there was such a depth behind him because I think he didn't know he was going, and he just got up out of bed and he had this present for her, and he gave her this beautiful teddy, you know, and it was he just gave it to her, and he, I just knew myself that he 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 knew he wouldn't see her again, you know, and that teddy was something then that she had you know, for, for weeks afterwards, you know, after after he died. And Bernadette's friendship with Clive is at the heart of her artworks. She began to draw him after the funeral. When Bernadette came home, uh, when she came back to her, her own life, she started just drawing him. And uh, she just started, uh, every day, she, at a particular time, she just started drawing him. Every At a particular time? Yeah, well, say uh, say in the morning, she'd get all her, she, she goes to a day centre. Yes. And um, that day centre, actually, as for people who were more more elderly, and I remember, I remember at the time they were they had placed Clive there, and um, Bernadette was a bit younger than Clive, and they, she, the the carers in John God's, they didn't really think that maybe Burr was a bit too young to be going there, you know. But Burr insisted; it was wonderful actually in the end. The Burr insisted that she wanted to go where Clive was, so she did go, and she had that extra few you know year or two with him, but. Um, yeah, so she she in the morning she they they do different activities and uh, she she would always start drawing and uh, she just started drawing them every day. So in the beginning, the the draw you know the staff were delighted. You know they felt yeah she's really grieving and um, she's using the process of art to to think about him and to process her feelings. And um, but then you know she she they were initially a little bit sad, but then. Then he appeared to be happy. It's always him in the picture. He seems to be happier and the colours are getting brighter, you know. And, yeah. um, I mean, just, and so she, she'd do it and then she just puts it away in a box that she has. So, so, so there was this huge, huge volume of work building up of, of Clive. And I used to say to her sometimes, 
you think do you think you might draw something else? <laughs> Would you like to draw like a mountain or a sea <laughs> or, or a something? House. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you know. No, no, it was it was Clive. This was it was like this was her special time, you know. And I think I, I understand now why people go to the importance of a grave or importance of some place because actually um, he was cremated actually um, Clive was so we didn't know we didn't have a place to go and um, you know I think it's, it's that thing of remembering you know the, remembering somebody when you're doing something mm. when she does that she's remembering him and she's thinking about him and she's happy she's happy it's not sad and it's not a sad thing anymore. How, how, um, talk to me about uh, somebody like your sister with an intellectual disability, as you say, nonverbal. How does, how do you confront grief or analyse the processing of it, if you like, in a way that allows everybody to try and come, come to an understanding so that you know how much minding is required? Yeah, well, I, I, I just think that there's such a scale and expertise in the... Well, first of all, there's a natural... I think Irish people are very good at that. Okay. Like, I mean, you give people time, you know, and uh, you, you light a candle and you, you have a photograph of the person. Burr would have had that teddy on, on her bed. The services in Carmona, they had a chaplain. And the chaplain, her name was Joy, she was just so wonderful. And they'd have a little group service and they'd remember him. So that nothing was rushed. Mm. Nothing was rushed, and it was just taking the time, you know. And it's, it's certainly um, even like ten years later, Clive is very much part of our lives. You know, we have photo, we have not photographs, we want the paintings, yeah. some of the paintings around our house. So Clive is very much part of of our of our lives, you know, and part of the services because his photograph would be up as well, you know. And when you were clearing so, out all the. The, yeah. the, the the boxes and things during the pandemic. Tell, tell me about yeah. what you well, discovered. Yeah. yeah, well, I think there's a wonderful artist, Ethna Griffin, who works in the day, day centre, and she could see the volume of work. And she said something, she loved it, and she said something has to be done about it. And so she she said, you know, let's 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 put this put, a, put an idea together here. So she worked so closely with Bernadette and was so respectful about what, what could be done and, and what ideas or how could, could they make a film, could they do animation, could they do something. How many so drawings, idea, Rita? Sorry to... There would be, oh, there'd be thousands. There'd be a ta- well, I'd say there might be a thousand drawings. Of, of Clive? Yes. Yeah. Cracky, okay, so that was... Yeah, yeah. yeah. and they're all very particular, very meticulous, like this kind of pointillism, you know, like... Yes, yeah. Dots and it's just, they're, they're, they are, it's just her thing, you know. So, 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 Esna put in the application then mm. to the hospice movement, who have who are grant funded by the Creative Ireland. Yeah, and they um, they liked the idea, and the idea was that it was going to be that they do a wall, a wall for Clive. Okay. And they would have a wall that would be all a sort of a, a mosaic of all the pictures, or a, a portfolio of a, a, some of the pictures. Great idea. So she 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 won the she won she won she won that or she got was awarded that I was saying she won it but it was an award to put up this big bill bill poster in um, Dalkey but uh, I mean only for Etna um, that wouldn't have happened. Okay, so and there's, there's going to be a know, massive poster uh, in yeah, Dalkey, which is in, in Dublin, of of yeah. this mosaic of Clive's uh, of Clive. It's wall for Clive. Wall for Clive. Yes, yeah, so there's wall. So yeah, you know. Um, it's, it's not, he won't be forgotten. Rita Wall speaking about her artist sister, Bernadette Wall, on the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, the importance of reaching the most vulnerable. 
with street medicine. Homelessness, drug addiction and a chaotic lifestyle means for some, health care comes at the bottom of the list of priorities. But over the next two days, a street medicine symposium in Limerick will examine how to reach the most vulnerable. Dr Patrick O'Donnell is a GP with social inclusion in the Midwest and Maeve O'Doherty is a child development homelessness project coordinator with ABC Start Right. And both Patrick and Maeve are involved in the street medicine symposium and are on the line now. Good morning to you both. Patrick, I'm going to start with you because I know at your surgery you're working with marginalised patients and many of them are dealing with issues like addiction to crack cocaine. What challenges does that bring for you? Yeah. Uh, hi, Tao. Good morning and thanks for having us on from UL here today. Yet we're we're running a what's called a low threshold uh, inclusion health GP clinic. So that means that the the uh, barriers to access to get to the services that we run are as low as possible in terms of registration, but also in terms of the supports that are available to the patients who come in the door. Um, drug use, um, I suppose, is a, is a fact of life, uh, and we're seeing kind of evolving changes in the way that uh, drugs are being used. And crack cocaine, like you've mentioned, is one of those things that we've had to learn about over the last couple of years. We've learned... And part of the purpose of this conference is to learn from each other, from projects around the country, learn from people, experts by experience. So we have included people who, I suppose, bring the voice of people who have actually used crack cocaine and used drugs. We're using research that has been conducted recently by the Midwest Drug and Alcohol Task Force and analytically into crack cocaine use and the effects of it and the, the health effects of it in particular um, for the patients that we're seeing. Okay. Can you um, explain to people listening, because many people won't yeah. be aware, crack cocaine, how is that used and what are the particular problems that it's posing for, for you in, in dealing with people who have that addiction? Of course, people are probably more familiar with cocaine that's, that's inhaled. Um, crack cocaine is mainly used um, through crack pipes. So people will, will uh, cook the crack and it will be inhaled using either crack pipes that are distributed um, by the, the HSE or uh, crack pipes that are homemade. So people will use plastic bottles or inhaler, uh, the, the uh, covers of inhalers or other plastic kind of receptacles to do that. So as you can imagine, if you're using uh, plastic bottles and other things, there's damage from chemicals that you're inhaling as well as the drug. The other way we see crack cocaine being used is being injected. And over the last number of months, I suppose the pattern in terms of injecting, mixing heroin and crack together, so it'll often be called a snowball or a speedball. So people are actually mixing heroin and crack in the one syringe and using that. And that obviously has a very unpredictable effect. If you think of it, heroin is a depressant and, and cocaine itself is a, is a stimulant. So we're, we're often unsure the effect that the overall effect that that's going to have on the person. But also when you bring crack cocaine into the mix, people need to use it more and more often. So you'll have the damaging effects of injecting drug use are multiplied. So you'll have to inject more often during the day. So if you may have injected two or three times a day, when you bring crack cocaine in, you may inject six, seven, eight times a day. So you have the increased risk of clots, of infections, of bloodborne viruses. Um, so we're, we're, I suppose, learning and dealing with the effects of this uh, over the last number of months. So that's hugely problematic. I mean, the, if you're taking a drug as often as you need to take crack cocaine when, once you're in the throes of addiction, that's going to lead to massive health problems. Yeah, and it's, it's something that I suppose has evolved over time and us as service providers have to be really 
actual front and centre in learning about these new trends. And it's something the National Social Inclusion Office, in particular in the, in the addiction side, are very keen to do. So they learn about these new trends. And as a community and people providing these health services across the country. Dr. Patrick O'Donnell there. And Claire also spoke to Maeve O'Doherty, Child Development Homelessness Project Coordinator with ABC Start Right. Maeve, we know homeless figures for last March show us nearly 3,500 children are homeless in the state. Now, you work with children who are aged between zero and six who are homeless in Limerick. How many children are your project, is your project aware of? My project is aware of 112 children and those figures now are from April, the last time I am collated those figures, 112 children between the ages of 0 and 6 currently living in temporary accommodation in Limerick City. So those are families that would have been allocated uh, a placement by the Homeless Action Team. So they're in places like hotels and homeless hubs? Yeah, hotels and homeless hubs. Now, Now you're working with the children, but you're also working with their parents to try and combat the effects of homelessness. What does that mean, May, for what you do? Okay, so basically we know that homelessness is an adverse experience in childhood and we also know that adversity in childhood results in poorer health outcomes for citizens. So my job, I suppose, and we also know that children are are presenting with um, developmental needs, higher developmental needs. Um, So my job, I suppose, aims to um, buffer the effects of that. So when there are developmental needs or developmental challenges, just describe to us what you're what you're seeing. I'm seeing, you know, delayed uh, growth, motor skills, fine motor skills, sometimes delayed speech and language skills, sometimes what parents would describe as behavioural issues with children, um, with, with their children or, you know, children that maybe... Uh, aren't supported to um, regulate their emotions as of yet. Um, I'm seeing uh, difficulties with food nutrition. Maeve O'Doherty from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.